We read the word of God tonight in Colossians chapter 3. The text will be verses 10 through 17. I won't reread that and ask that you pay special attention to that. Colossians 3, we'll read the first 17 verses. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, Wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. And now the text we consider tonight. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Thus far we read the Word of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. Looking at the bulletin, I see that you had a sermon this morning on the communion of saints. And to be frank with you, This is also really a sermon on the communion of the saints. You and I are called by God to live a life that is directed to God, to praise God, to worship God. And we often, or sometimes maybe speak of that as our vertical relationship. We are here below, God is up above, so we direct our thoughts, our actions, up to glorify, to exalt God. At the same time, we know that we are called to live a certain way toward our neighbor. We are to live not in sin or hatred against the neighbor, 
but we are to live in righteousness, doing what is good, and in love for the neighbor. And we sometimes might call that the horizontal plane of our life. We are here below, our neighbor is here below, and so we are living towards them horizontally. I don't mind that distinction between the vertical and the horizontal, but when we come to Colossians 3, we are reminded that really all of our life, even our life that we live towards each other, the neighbor, is to be directed to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 1, we are not to seek the things here below, but to seek the things which are above. And in all of our life, we are to give evidence of the fact that we were dead, but we're not dead anymore. We're alive in Christ. So that in all that you do to your neighbor, all you think about your neighbor, all you say to your neighbor, all that you do to your neighbor, you are to be behaving as one who loves Christ and lives for Christ. That means then that, to put it another way, whenever you look at another person outside the church, but inside the church, you are to see Christ. And say, now how am I to behave towards that person as one who belongs to Jesus Christ? And this is especially in, true in the church. Here in Colossians 3, the Apostle is speaking of the calling of the believer to seek all those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he's saying, now, here's what you are to put off. Put off the old man and his deeds, all the ways of sin. And now when he comes and says, and this is positively how you are to live, he is not speaking generally the whole of our life, We have a life that we live in the world. There's a life that we live where we have to rub shoulders with unbelievers. But he is focusing on the sphere of the church. He's focusing on the sphere of the Colossian congregation. And now the congregation of First Holland Protestant Reformed Church. Together, not just as an individual, but as a congregation. We are to put off the old man and his deeds and have put on the new man. And we are to live together as those who are filled with Christ. I am filled with Christ is the attitude we must have. And now the person with whom I have to do in the church is also filled with Christ. So that we don't simply live together as those who are told by Christ love each other, but really, we live together through Christ living in us. So I call your attention to the text tonight, living together through Christ. That's the theme, living together through Christ. And we're going to notice, first of all, our Christ-filled identity. And if you want to know where that comes from in the text, that's the end of verse 11. Christ is all and in all. And then, because this is our identity, we're filled with Christ. We live a Christ-filled life. That's the second point. First, our Christ-filled identity. Secondly, our Christ-filled life. 
life. What we need to see here, first of all, beloved, is that the Apostle Paul is applying the gospel to the lives of Christians. He's saying, your life is directed by what God has done for you in Christ. Or to use that idea of an identity, your life is directed by your identity, by who God has made you to be in Jesus Christ. So that there are two errors that we need to avoid. One is the thinking that because Christ has done so much for me, and He has done so much for me, therefore I may expect that God is never going to come to me and say, now there's something for you to do. Here's a passage that is directed to Christians. And the Apostle Paul has already told them, Christ has done much for you. And from the point of view of covering all of your sins, from the point of view of raising you from the dead, and from the point of view of giving to you the resurrection life of the Spirit, Christ has done everything for you. Now, that does not mean that you can expect that I'm never going to say to you, now here's what I want you to do, how I want you to live. That's what some people expect. Christ did so much for me, now God will never tell me to do anything. Well, here we have evidence to the contrary. God says, Christ has done much for you, and yet... In this passage, God is saying, and now I have much that I command you to do. There is a certain way I want you to live. So the first error that we have to avoid is thinking that God is not going to come to us as Christians in Christ and and never say to us, this is how I want you to live. These are the things I want you to do. He does direct our lives. But now the second error is that we must not leave the gospel out of that. God in the Bible never leaves the gospel out. And true preaching of the gospel never leaves the gospel out when the word comes telling us how to live. But that does happen sadly sometimes. And what I have in mind is this, that a preacher may stand in the pulpit and say to the congregation, now you have to obey God, you have to live a certain kind of life And then leave out the gospel so that the emphasis is on you living your best life. You doing what's in you. Using the power that you have to be the best you you can be. So that to put it in terms then of, let me make sure I get the right verse here. Verse 11. Be the best Greek you can be. Be the best Jew you can be. Be the best circumcised or uncircumcised person. Barbarian, Scythian. Be the best slave or the best free man you can be. That's not what the apostle is doing here. He's not giving simply a moral lesson saying this is how you are to behave as a human being and do the best that you can. That would be boring. That would be impossible for you as a dead sinner in your own power to improve your life. But he comes with a much more, well, energetic, electrifying message. 
He says, I come to you in the light of the gospel of what God has done for you to change who you are and tell you, now on the basis of your new identity in Christ, now you have to live a certain kind of life. And I hope you see that in verse 10, there is the most exciting kind of language possible. You are renewed in knowledge after the image of God. You're a new you, a you that you haven't made yourself to be, but you've been created after the image of God at the end of verse 10 that says, this is a work that God has performed for you in Jesus Christ. So he comes and he says, do you you understand what has happened? By nature, you were dead and in the image of the devil, you were evil and you could only do evil. And now God, through Jesus Christ, on the basis of what he's done for you on the cross and through the work of the Spirit in you, has renewed you so that you've put off the image of the devil. You, you no longer bear the image of Satan and of the wicked people of the world. You have the image of God. You're ignorant, unrighteous, unholy. You now have saving knowledge. You know God. And you have righteousness, and we're going to come to this a little later, holiness. You are a wonderfully new creature. Spiritually, a a new creation of God. That's your identity. Now go live that way. That's the message of the apostle here in the text. You see how that's Gospel truth or gospel identity directing the way we live. And then verse 11 is going on to say, and this is true for everyone who is a Christian, at the end of the day, your identity is not that you are a Jew or a Greek, a barbarian or a Scythian. Your your identity is not that you are a slave or a free man, that you have circumcision or you don't have circumcision. If you have been given faith to believe in Jesus Christ, then this is who you are. An image bearer of God. A new creature. Now because we often are very slow to really grasp spiritual realities and how exciting and wonderful they are, I'll try to use an illustration here that that will help some of you to understand what we're talking about. It's as if you have an old, rusty car or pickup, and if someone would come to me with my lack of mechanical skills and say, now you you do your best to, to, to make this car run and, and, and you make the best out of this automobile that you can, it, it would still be a very ugly, worthless vehicle. But now imagine that a master mechanic, someone who is a, a, a wonder worker with machines, and, and not only knows how to deal with all of the mechanical parts of the car, but also the, the cosmetic parts, the body on the outside of the car, transforms that automobile not just into a, a new machine, but, but the most excellent, finest machine in all the world. Beloved, that's who you and I are. We have to 
Be humble, we're going to come to that. Acknowledge that we still have an old man, that we still sin often, and yet that's not our identity. And if you are given faith by God to grasp this, you will understand this is marvelous. The new you is a creation of God through Jesus Christ. The most wonderful creature. Now here on earth we still struggle with sin and often fail to manifest the new creature we are in Christ. But you realize in heaven man, redeemed, glorified man is going to be higher than the angels. That's God's destiny for you and me. We are Alive, new creatures in Christ. And so verse 11 ends this way. What's your identity? Well, Christ. He is all. And in all. Who are you? As someone renewed, recreated, full of Jesus Christ. That's a wonder, isn't it? The idea is not that you have been given a thimble full of the life of Christ and the presence of Christ within you, but you are full of Christ. And then the apostle goes on in verse 12 to continue identifying us. He goes back to eternity. He says, this is who you are, the elect of God. And then he goes on to say, holy and beloved. And you understand that he's saying, God doesn't come to you and say, I don't know about you. I'm not quite sure what to do with you. I haven't definitely chosen you to be mine. I haven't chosen to give you my grace and to give you salvation in Christ. I haven't chosen to give you any power to live a new life. But I want you to live a new life anyway. If, if that was the message of the Apostle Paul and, and all you and I could say is, well, it's up to me, and then God maybe will decide what to do with me. That would be discouraging, and, and we know that it would be impossible for us to live any kind of holy life. But when God comes to us and says, this is determined by me, and who did he choose first? Christ. He is the elect, the chosen one of God. And now here, the apostles coming and saying, this is your identity. In that same love in which God chose Christ, He has chosen you. And He has chosen you that you may be holy, that you may be set apart, that, that you may be taken away from the world, that, that you may be made different from the people of the world, that you may be set in the church and be devoted to God. And you share that identity with Christ, don't you? He's the Holy One. And he's the one living in you. And in Christ, filling you, you're holy and beloved. That's astounding, isn't it? Ephesians 1 says that Christ is the beloved of God. Of course he is. He's the one that God loves. John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer speaks of the love that the Father has for him and now this is the testimony of the gospel. 
That love that the triune God directs to Jesus Christ, He directs to you and me. This is who you are. Good news. Renewed, recreated, filled with Christ, chosen in eternity by God, set apart by God, loved by God in Jesus Christ. I hope you feel the accumulation of this. The weight of the apostle not only saying one thing, this is who you are, now go live your Christian life. But he's piling it on, emphasizing it for you and me so that he can get this through to you and me. So that he can give me a message I need to hear. And you too. How do you identify yourself? So often, it's some earthly identity that we use. Identify myself by my family, perhaps. Or I identify myself by my occupation. I identify by myself by my position. I'm a student. I identify myself by my abilities. I'm good at a sport or some other thing that is important to human beings. Or, and I think this is what the Apostle is really addressing, the danger of identifying myself by my sin. Still have an old man. I keep failing. I sin every day. And that's who I am. A sinner. And the apostle comes and he's saying, here's the good news. That's who you are by nature. But that's not who God leaves you to be in Jesus Christ. He's made you this new creature. And wouldn't this, I know it would for me, beloved, wouldn't it make a big difference for you if you would remember this? Tomorrow, as I relate to my spouse, as I relate to my children, to my parents, my classmates, my co-workers, to the other members of the church. If I would remember that my identity is not this, that I'm just a human being living in this world. And my identity isn't what family I belong to or what I do for a living. But my identity is that I'm filled with Christ. And now that must determine everything I do. And that's what the Apostle is explaining then in verses 12 through 14. With your Christ-filled identity, and now not just as an individual, but as a congregation, live a Christ-filled life. And we notice in verse 12 there that the beginning of the verse is put on. Put on, therefore, notice that, in light of who you are, in light of who God has made you to be in Jesus Christ, put on, and then it's going to start with bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness in mind, and so on. 11, 12 things he's going to go on to say. But he's describing this Christ-filled life in terms of putting on clothing. And you, you can understand that. And the idea is, 
having been filled on the inside with Christ, now let this come out on the outside in your life. And he's telling you that as a Christian, this is the idea now, you need to get dressed, not physically, that's just the picture, but spiritually in a way that identifies you. I think you understand what that means. If tomorrow you have to get dressed, not just for your everyday activities, but you have to get dressed in a way that identifies you so that people will know exactly what position you have, what role you have, what work you have to do, you understand what that means. If, if a man is a police officer and he's not an undercover police officer, but the, the city or the county says, now, we want you to be visible out there. We want you to go out there and identify yourself by your uniform as a policeman. You know what that means. He's going to wear maybe blue, and he's going to wear a uniform that maybe has the name of the county or the town. He's going to have a badge that is a policeman's badge. And now, I think you can understand what Paul is saying to the members of the church in Colossae, and now to you here in First Holland PRC, as adults, but also you children, he's saying, you need to live your life in such a way that it's like you're wearing a uniform that clearly identifies you to everyone around you. You're a Christian. You're not a policeman, you're not a fireman, you're not a worldly person. You are a Christian. Paul has said in verses 5 through 9, as those who are alive in Christ and now filled with Christ, you need to put off the old man. You may not wear the clothing, and now this is the spiritual clothing of the sinful behavior of the world. You may not. Live in such a way that people say, well, you're just like us. Nor may you as a Christian live in such a way that people say, well, I can't really tell. You know, that's what Jesus was addressing, wasn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that ye are the light of the world and when God has given you this light like a candlestick, you don't hide it under a bushel basket. No, God has given you light and salvation to put you on display in the world. Shame on me. Shame on you. If in our lives, we are not living in such a way that people can say, that man, that woman, that young person, that child is easy to identify as a Christian. That's what the apostle is calling for here in the text. And then he gets into the specifics. And we're going to go through that very quickly. Each one of these verses coming up here could be probably separated out in, into a couple of sermons. But we're, we're putting this all together because the apostle is saying, here's now your identity, you're filled with Christ, and now here's your life. And this all goes together. You have to live this well-rounded, well-balanced life. Put on 
bowels of mercies. Bowels of mercies. Compassion. This requires that your attitude is, I'm not going to hold the members of the congregation at arm's length as those I don't really care about. I'm going to pull them in or go to them to get to know them, get to know their needs, get to know the way they may need to be served, and I'm going to have compassion, a desire to help them. This is the attitude of the Good Samaritan, the opposite of the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite were the men who said, we're going to stay on the other side of the road, far away from the neighbor, so that we don't have to have any concern for him. And the Good Samaritan said, this is my attitude, I'll cross the road to get to know you and your need because I care about you. Put on bowels of mercies, and then closely connected to that is kindness. Here, the emphasis is on action. I have compassion for you, that's good. But the Bible everywhere says that's not enough, doesn't it? To, to say I am aware of your need and I can even tell you with my mouth that I hope that somehow your need is met, that, that good is done to you, but I'm not going to do that. That's condemned by the Bible. The Bible says you take the opportunity, you take the gifts you have and actually do good. Put your kindness into action. That's the attitude, too, of that good Samaritan, wasn't it? He not only crossed the road in order to show an interest in the man that was beaten there and lying by the side of the road, but if he at that point said, well, I feel sorry for you, I, I hope that someone comes along and helps you and walked away, then there wouldn't be a parable of the good Samaritan, would there? But he anointed that man with oil. He cared for his wounds, brought him to a place where he gave money that he might continue to be cared for. He put his kindness and compassion into action. And then the apostle calls next for humbleness of mind. Lowliness of mind, literally. It's not hard to understand what he's talking about. I am low. That's my attitude towards myself. I'm not high, not in comparison to Jesus Christ for sure. I'm low before Him. But now this is where it becomes more difficult, doesn't it? In comparison with the other members of the church, I'm not high. I think of myself as lower than them. I'm lowly in mind. And I do that because I think of myself as a sinner. And I don't think of the sins of the other members of the church. But I know my sinful thoughts, my sinful deeds, how unworthy I am. So, lowliness or humbleness of mind. Meekness. Meekness really is the virtue of restraint. That's what it is. You hit me, I'm tempted to hit you back. But meekness says, no, I'm not going to hit you back. You slandered me, you talk behind my back. I'm tempted to slander you to talk behind your back. Meekness is the ability to say, no, I'm going to restrain myself from doing that harmful thing back against you. 
It's not easy, is it? But then the apostle adds long-suffering to meekness. This goes with meekness. He's talking about a patience or the exercise, I'll put it this way, of meekness over a long period of time. That's a challenge, isn't it? In a marriage or in a relationship in the workplace or in the church. It's one thing to be able to say someone did something to me that I didn't appreciate. They offended me. And I restrained myself. I didn't respond back to them. But then you live with the reality that this person in your home or in the church doesn't just do one thing to annoy you or to hurt you. But the next day they do it again. And they do it again and again and again. And if you're like me, you'd like to say, give me a reward for showing meekness and restraining myself once. But don't make me do it again. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you're filled with Christ, you're going to exercise this restraint, this meekness, again and again with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you will forbear one another. This brings meekness and long-suffering a step further. And I think you can understand this. To, to forbear one another is to, to carry each other, to lift each other up, to, to help each other, to do good to each other. That kindness that we've already looked at. And that's even harder, isn't it? It's one thing to say I'm going to restrain myself and I'm not going to respond to the evil that has been done to me. It's another thing in, to be long-suffering and to say, and I'll do that again and again. I'll let my neighbor hit me, slap my cheek over and over, and I'll keep turning the other cheek. But you want me to go further, Paul? You want me not only to restrain myself from responding in revenge and in kind, but you want me to actually look at this person and say, and now I'm going to do good to you? And though you have been evil to me, if, if I see you need help, you, you need in any way my assistance, I'm going to do it for you. Paul's saying, yes, that's your calling as one who is filled with Christ. And then he goes on. In verse 13, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Be ready, not because people are worthy of it. That's not forgiveness. But be ready because you have been forgiven to let the sins of the other members go. And the standard is not, well, as you would like to forgive, forgive. But even as Christ forgave you. How has Christ forgiven you? Some of your sins? No, all of your sins. Grudgingly? No, willingly, freely. And now think about how much you desire that? How much do you desire Christ to forgive your sins? Then let that be how much you desire to
to forgive the sins of others in the church. This might be taking some liberty with the text, but you know we have this picture here of an earthly garment, a wardrobe of clothing that we wear here in the text. And one man whom I referred to in preparing this sermon said, he likes to think of this forgiveness as the scissors that you carry along with your garment. You're putting on the new man and you have uh, compassion, you have kindness, and now you have this scissors of forgiveness. And he says, think of now the, the members of the church clothed together, putting on the new man of Jesus Christ, and you have some loose end. Sin. And what are you going to do? You're going to pull on those loose ends. You're going to unravel the garment. You're going to destroy the relationships and the unity of the church. He says, put on forgiveness as the scissors that snips the loose end and lets the sin go. And beloved, that's a a wonderful privilege and a great freedom that we're given in the church. Think of those people who are described earlier in the chapter. People who are empty with regard to Christ. They don't have Christ living in them. And therefore, they don't have the power to live a new life. What life do they live? The apostle describes it as a, as a life of anger and of wrath and of malice, doing evil to each other. And this is what they do, isn't it? One person in a relationship between unbelievers sins against the other. They don't have the ability to say, I forgive you, it's over. No, they, they hold on to that sin. They, they put it on a list. They hold a grudge. And they use that sin as a reason to attack the other person. And the relationship is strained, destroyed. Now what a wonderful thing that God gives you in your relationships with the members of the church to do away with that. Not a week, not a year, not ten years. Not 20 years of holding a grudge because of sin, but forgiving it today, snipping it away, and it's gone. Forgive as Christ forgave you, and above all these, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. You know that's love. Love. Just as you know, 1 Corinthians 13 Right, The Apostle Paul says the greatest of these is charity. There's faith, there's hope, but the greatest of these is charity. You know that's love. And that, that really goes back to what he says in the beginning. Bowels of compassion, kindness. Love is this interest in the welfare of others. And not only an interest in the welfare of others, but this going into action to actually do good to others, to try to build them up. We, we know that when a husband says he loves his wife, that that's not simply him speaking, using words, but now that has to be shown in action. He has to seek out his wife, have fellowship with his wife, do good to his wife. That's love. And now what the apostle is saying is, and the effect of that love, is that relationships are built in which there's a bond that can't be broken. Think about that. This is all in the context, right, of being filled with Christ. So that 
the bowels of mercies we put on are his bowels of mercies. The kindness we show are, is his kindness. And now the love that binds us together is the love of Christ. And what's the character of that love? The character of that love is, well, unconditionality. Big word, but a beautiful word. You can think of it this way. If there's a relationship between unbelievers and there's a sin, that sin becomes a cause for breaking the bond, destroying the relationship. You sinned against me, and I'm going to hold it against you. Christ says, you sinned against me. I'm going to love you anyway. And the character of the love of Christ is not only unconditional, but it's self-sacrificial. I'm going to deny myself. Even though you have sinned against me, and that hurts me, I'm going to give myself for you to deliver you, to save you. And, and you see, then, with this kind of love that Christ has for us, the bond be between us and Christ is unbreakable. Now, this isn't an excuse to sin, but it's a great comfort, isn't it? Because Christ's love is unconditional, because it's self-sacrificial, because it's a love in which he is determined to seek our good no matter what, none of our sins, nothing we do, can break the bond that we have with Christ. And now, the apostle says, in the sphere of the church, where it's not an unbeliever loving an unbeliever, or a believer and an unbeliever, but the way it should be is that you have two believers. Loving each other with the love of Christ. And if that's true, then there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no circumstance that arises in our life as Christians that should be able to break us apart. Because we're committed to forgiving each other, confessing sin, loving each other for the sake of Jesus Christ. Love is the bond of perfectness. And then let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you're called in one body, be ye thankful. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss that tonight because I almost missed that this morning in the faith congregation going through all of these things. If you think about putting on peace, the apostle speaks of it as an internal thing, let it rule in your hearts. But if you want to think of it as a piece of, of clothing, you can think of a, a cap, maybe a crown. And the, and the idea is not that you're the ruler, but that the peace of God rules you. And what a difference that would make if that were true every moment of our lives. Whatever happens to me, I'm going to be ruled not by my circumstances, but by the peace of God. You can think of it this way. There's a family in the faith congregation who lost a mother and a grandmother this morning. Now, that death, that loss, that circumstance could be what determines how they're going to think and how they behave. Lost my mother. I'm angry. Lost my mother. I'm sad. Lost my mother. I'm bitter. 
But the apostle says, remember, no matter what happens to you, you you lose a loved one or you become diagnosed with a deadly disease, something like that, or some other horrible thing happens to you in your life, you are to be ruled by the peace of God in your heart. And no matter what happens to me, say, this doesn't change the fact that Christ has paid for my sins. He has removed the wrath of God from me. I have the peace of God. And now, no matter what happens to me, that's going to rule my life, rule my response to all my circumstances. Or, not just whatever happens to me, but whatever others do to me, that's not going to rule me, but the peace of God in my heart will rule me. So, I may go to school tomorrow, And someone may do something to me, say something to me that's wrong, evil. And I could be controlled by that. And you know what that's like. When someone in the church or somewhere else has done something to me and you're controlled by that, that's when you say, I'm going to respond in kind. I'm going to lash out to them. And there's not peace and contentment and a calm reaction, but anger and hatred and strife. Paul says no. Someone in the church, someone in the school, somewhere, anywhere does something evil to you. Respond with the peace of God ruling your heart. What they do to me doesn't change the fact that I'm at peace with God. And what they do to me doesn't change the fact that how I live must be dominated by the fact that God has set Christ over me as the Prince of Peace. I will serve Him. Then the Apostle says here, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And there's a whole sermon there, isn't there? But this all belongs to what the Apostle is getting across. You have The life of Christ in you, you're filled with Christ. Now this is part of your life, that you let the Word of God dwell in you richly, first of all. And you understand the importance of that in the context of Colossians 3, don't you? You are to do what? To seek the things which are above and not the things which are below. You're to put off the old man and his deeds of sin. You are to live a life where you're putting on the new man and and busy in all of these things that the Apostle is calling for in your life, how are you to do that? You need to be filled with the Word of God. That's why it's important that we're here, isn't it? Together as a congregation to hear the Word of God preached. And to do that Lord's Day after Lord's Day. That's why it's important that we do that together as families. Gather around the Word of God to have the Word of God read to us and explained so that it will dwell richly within us. And we notice here, beloved, that the purpose of this is so that we will praise God. That's what comes out in those three designations that the Apostle uses here in the text. When he speaks of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's, he's speaking of things that are directed to the glory of God. And he's saying that when the Word of God is in you, it must come out of you in joy. In a song that comes in your, from your heart. To know God and to be filled with Christ 
does not lead to a joyless, merely intellectual, dry, cold Christian life. You have Christ in you, and you know what he has done for you. That's going to lead to singing. And what you sing is important. The apostle wants us to sing the word of God. What we sing in our worship service is important. We must not just sing whatever we want. It must be doctrinal, the truth of the word of God, for the praise of God. But then secondly, for the teaching and admonishing, and here, beloved, I believe admonishing refers not to rebuking, but to encouraging the other members of the congregation. You want to know how to help the others in the church? You want to know how to teach them about Christ? Comfort them in the midst of the many difficulties, trials of life? Bring them the Word of God. Speak to them the Word of God. But when appropriate, sing to them the Word of God. Sing with them as we do in the worship service the Word of God. Notice, beloved, this text is not to be used to divide saints, to cause division among saints. That's what often happens with this verse in verse 16 about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is about the saints working together to bring Christ to each other. And that's what we have then in verse 17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And do you see it? The apostle is saying, I have been giving you all of this instruction about how to relate to each other, how you are to live with your neighbor. And in all of this, you're not to think of yourself really, or even the other person, but do everything for the glory of Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper, some of you may have heard of him, is famous for a quote in which he basically says that the Lord Jesus Christ says of the whole universe, mine, it's all mine, and must all be dedicated to the glory of my name. The Apostle Paul is basically saying something like that here, but a little bit different. He's saying the Lord Jesus Christ points Not now to the whole universe, that's true, but to you, Christian. And he says, your life, all that you are, all that you have, mine. And now dedicate all that you are, all that you have, all that you do to the glory of my name. This is how you show that you are filled with Christ to others in the church and outside of the church. You are the way that Christ reveals himself to other people. And think about the glory of that. There are some people who don't have the Bible, who don't know anything about Jesus Christ. And yet, this week, they may see something of Jesus Christ. if They see you and how you walk and speak, and live. And then, lastly, beloved, notice that being filled with Christ means that you are to live a life of thanksgiving. Do you notice that the Apostle Paul says that very clearly two times, but really three times? First of all, it's at the end of verse 15, and be ye thankful. 
And then also in verse 16, when he says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, he's saying, sing with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. And then finally, in verse 17, he says, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Give credit, he's saying, to whom credit is due. And give the amount of credit that is due to him. That is, when you think about what the Lord has done for you in Jesus Christ, don't think, well, he's done a little bit for me. No, he gave his life for you. He rose from the dead and descended into heaven to make the way for you to go to heaven. That's where your life is. And that's your destiny, to be in heaven, to be higher than the angels, to live with the Lord forever. When you think about all the good that He has done for you, even when your life is unpleasant, even when the people around you are unpleasant, be thankful. Do you feel it? Beloved, you have a huge calling. And that's one of the reasons why I decided, although I have preached some of these verses as individual texts in the past, to put them all together. Not to discourage you, not to make you think, I can never do all of this, but hopefully to excite you with the high calling that you have and to impress you with this. I'm filled with Christ. And I have a lot to do. I'm so busy in living the Christ-filled life. I don't have time for all that fornication. And all that uncleanness. And evil and covetousness. And that anger and wrath and malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. I'm too busy for that. Putting on the new man. And yes, 11, 12 things. Christ says, this is the way you show. I'm in you. Amen. Father in heaven, Grant that through thy word we may become conscious of who we are and not forget it tonight, in the coming week, in our life together as a church, and in all of our life. May we remember who we are, filled with Christ, and then live that life out, showing to others clearly who we are and who we serve, and that we love not sin and the ways of the world, but in loving Christ, we love the church, and we love our brothers and sisters. May we say that in word, and show that in deed. We pray with Christ's power strengthening us. Amen.